You're listening to episode 33 of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally or financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice, and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners Coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What is happening, my fellow money owners? I am proud to say that I am recording this on time, and I will be releasing this on time. (laughs) So hooray for me. And actually, this is the first time I'm recording this in our new house. Um, So that's pretty exciting for me. And it's been, it's honestly, it's been insane. Uh, We moved beginning of January, and I took a quick trip to New York. like end of January and we've had contractors coming through our house and we've had the builder coming back through our house. Um, and my son started daycare and my son was sick and my mother-in-law had an act. It's just been like on and on and on with stuff. Um, and my son turned two years old, which was exciting. We had a big birthday party for him. Um, and so it's just been kind of thing after thing after thing. And, um, and I'm not feeling settled at all. And I was talking to a colleague about it and he was like, well, isn't, like habits and things in general, just these systems that we create to give ourselves some sort of sense of security in this world of chaos. <laughs> and I love that he said that because um, it's so him for starters. And also it's true. Um, we just create these systems for ourselves to give ourselves a sense of security in a world that really is chaos. Um, and one of the reasons why it is so hard for people to move, why it's, you know, the number two stressor for people is because you take yourself out of your environment where you're super comfortable and you put yourself into a new environment where you have to start doing completely new things, um, and getting used to it and everything else. And you're removing yourself from your community and you're putting yourself in a new community. So with the exception of really moving down the block, which um, is still in and of itself stressful because you have to pack everything up and then put everything in your house. Um, Moving in general is, I can see why it's really stressful. Um, (laughs) And it's been really stressful for us for sure. And um, I can definitely be a lot more empathetic uh, towards my clients and towards really anybody who is experiencing a move, having gone through this cross-country move ourselves. Um, that's not actually what I wanted to talk about today. I do want to talk about some homeowner stuff, um, but we're probably not going to get into it in this episode. Maybe the next episode will bring that up. In this episode, I wanted to talk about the SECURE Act. So end of 2019, um, like the president likes to do, he likes to plop a bill on us right at the end where everyone gets to um, you know, have a really fun Christmas read. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they did that in 2017. They plopped down the new tax laws. And in 2019, they decided to plop down um, the this nice bill called the SECURE Act. Um, and SECURE, I was reading, it sounds for uh, setting every community up for retirement enhancement. Um which is interesting because when you actually read the bill, I don't, I don't know necessarily if you would agree with that. <laughs> um, but that's what it stands for, and they're calling it the Secure Act because they really want to hammer home that everyone's going to feel very secure after this. Um, so the, I'm just going to go down the line and give my color commentary on what's going on with this new act. And the first thing that they changed are um, the they made some modifications to the prior minimum distribution rules. So we've talked about this in previous episodes when you contribute to a pre-tax retirement account, like a traditional IRA or your 401k if it's pre-tax or 403b or really any of these plans where you put pre-tax dollars into the plan, you take a tax deduction now 
um, with in exchange for basically these things called required minimum, dis- ugh, required minimum distributions, whereby you have to take the money out of the account and then the IRS taxes you on the money that comes out of the account. And the hope is, is that in your earning years that you have earned, you you know, that you're paying a higher tax rate in your earning years that you, than you would be in your retirement years. And you net it out better because you took the deduction in an environment where you're paying less I'm sorry, were you paying more in taxes in trade-off to be um, to be actually paying taxes in an environment where theoretically you'd be paying less in taxes because you're not making income, although the distributions from your retirement account and any investments that you have, which you'll have to live on in retirement, would be considered taxable. <laughs> so um, that's the hope with these, these deductible accounts. But what they did now is they said that instead of taking these required, required minimum distributions, RMDs, at 70 and a half, you can you now can wait until 72. And the hope from Congress is that if you wait an extra 18 months before you take these RMDs, that your account will grow so much that you won't have to worry about retirement. Um, at least that was <laughs> that was how I read it when I was reading what they said about it, that they were like, it's great. You don't have to, you know, you'll have an extra 18 months for your assets to grow. And um, I think all of the financial planners in the room were like rolling their eyes because everyone knows that like the difference between 18 months and, you know, right now is very is basically minute. Like when I have, (laughs) when I have people come into my office and ask me, I'm going to buy a house in 18 months. What should I do with my money? What should I invest it in? And I'm literally like, you should put it in a cash account and have it earn 2% interest. If that's even what you can get right now. Um, because there's literally nothing that you can do with your money in 18 months (laughs) that would make you better off. Um, that said, uh, Congress feels otherwise, so that's what they did. Um, the other thing that they did, though, with the so with this is that they added a stipulation saying, okay, well, you can contribute to your plan for longer, and you don't have to pull out money as soon. And everyone was like, yay. <laughs> but if you try to pass these accounts on to a non-spouse, so uh, your kids, for instance, which is a typical um, choice when you're passing on retirement accounts, um, that they no longer can do something that's just called the stretch IRA. So in the past, what you, what you were able to do is you were able to pass on your IRA to the next generation. And then the next generation would take their own RMDs, but on their lifetime table instead of your own. So if let's say, you know, you're 85 and you die and you were probably taking higher requirement. Well, you had to be taking higher RMDs at that time because of your age. And they do these tables based on age, basically. So what they do is at the end on uh, December 31st of the previous year, you basically take that that amount, you divide it by the number in the IRS's uniform lifetime tables. I know it's very interesting. And that's the number you get. And the older you are, the lower that divisor is. So the more money you have to take out of the account. But when you're younger, so if you pass it on, let's say you you know you really love your 18 year old grandson when you're 85, and you decide you're going to leave your IRA to him, 18 year old grandson has a much higher divisor underneath that number, and therefore he can stretch out his distributions over a much longer period of time. So um, it was actually a really good estate planning tactic that people were using. Was that okay? Well, if I didn't you know completely empty my IRAs at some point, um, and if my spouse didn't need the money. What I would do is I would leave it to a grandchild or even to my child. That way, the the RMDs can get stretched over a longer period of time, 
Um, or conversely, I would leave it to my spouse knowing that they would then leave it to my child or grandchild um, and <laughs> it would get stretched over a much longer period of time. These rules do not ap apply to leaving our, the new rules or and the old rules didn't apply to leaving a retirement plan to your spouse either. But under the new rules, you can't do the stretch anymore. Under the new rules, if you leave it to a non-spouse, they have to now empty this account in 10 years. So it changes a lot of the planning tactics that a lot of us used to use um, going forward. So if you are currently a beneficiary of an IRA and you've been taking RMDs and this that your person who left you the IRA died before December 31st of 2019, congratulations, you can continue to do your stretch. However, if that person died on January 1st of 2020, you can no longer do your stretch and you have to liquidate that account in 10 years. Um, there's some stipulations to it. Um, it doesn't apply to uh, minor children. So the way I read the rule was that if you left the account to a minor child, they didn't have to do anything with the account until they turned 18, whereupon at the age of 18, they would have 10 years to liquidate that account. Um, and I don't know about you, but... <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, that's great. Okay, the assets, you know, if I left it to my two-year-old, you know, grandchild, hopefully at that time, as opposed to my two-year-old son, that means I'm literally dying right now. Um, that means that it would have 16 years to grow, but then my grandchild would get the money when he's like at peak idiotness. Um, and... <laughs> he would potentially do some very terrible things with this money. So um, between the age of 18 and 28. So I don't know necessarily if that's a good estate planning tactic. Um, the other things that I've heard people in the planning community talking about are um, charitable remainder trusts that would basically preserve the stretch. The thing about this, right, it's great if you don't need, it's, it's one of those things that, um, it kind of comes up when I have clients who they're in like a moderate tax bracket because they make like, you know, they make, 250 a year or 300 grand a year. Um, they make enough money to like be considered wealthy by the standards of the IRS, but they don't make so much money. And they probably also live in a high cost of living area whereby they can't really take advantage of any of the rules, um, and regulations and loopholes that the IRS have out there, um, thereby like allowing them to lower their tax rate or anything else. Um, it's the same thing with this, right? So, if you were thinking about leaving your IRA to a charity anyways, this would be a great option. Um, but that assumes that, hey, your spouse doesn't need the money and you also either don't care about disinheriting your kids um, or you, you know, your kids are so well off that you don't want to give them an inheritance or you just don't want to give them an inheritance in general. I mean, those are all fine reasons. But generally, people want to leave their money to somebody that they know and love and trust and all of that. So um, it it does help, uh, <laughs> but there's also, I mean, there's some interest rate related things I don't really want to get into on this podcast. It would, you know, bore everybody um, as to why you wouldn't necessarily want to do a charitable or major trust. But um, that's basically the idea of like the main thing that this the Secure Act had passed was um, they changed the RMD rules that you now have to take it at seventy two instead of seventy and a half. Um, that also like negates all of the weird planning strategies that people had um, if they were born in the second half of the year. Now it's just you know seventy two. You take your RMD. Um, so and in, in that regard, they actually made it more. Um, I guess, accessible to people because it's not like a weird guessing game as to when you're supposed to take your RMD now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not a weird guessing game for financial planners, but that's because like we're looking at this stuff all the time, right? But for like the average person, you got to like sit there and I turn 70 and a half and then what tax year am I supposed to be taking this? It's, you know, it's kind of confusing. Um, 
And it's a little bit also weird that like somebody who's born June 30th would have a very different, you know, date by which they had to take it out versus somebody July 1st because of the way the IRS thinks about things. So um, in that regard, I think that they they did a good thing. Um, but really what they did was they said, okay, hey, like we're showing you that we're going to give you a benefit with the SECURE Act by, you know, delaying RMDs. Having said that, like we're really going to get our money by making sure that anybody you leave this to besides your spouse is going to pay lots of taxes on this. So... Um, I actually, I talked to some estate attorneys about this and the thing I found really interesting was like, um, if people still are very partisan about it. I mean, I just think it's like a bad act in general, <laughs> but I have some people who are like, you know, who I know who are Trump supporters who are like, well, you know, you're supposed to spend your money when you're in retirement. And it's like, you're an estate attorney. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you can think a little bit more objectively about like how this is actually hurting your clients, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Anyways, um, I don't want to get political on this podcast. And yeah, the other thing that they did um, is they repealed the maximum age for traditional IRA contributions. So small yet favorable change. So for those over the age of 70 and a half who are still earning income, i.e. you're still working, you're going to work every day, you can still contribute to an IRA. Great. <laughs> thank you. I, um, thank you, Secure Act. Um the other things that they did is they they actually, in this bill, they dumped stuff relate, not related to um, retirement. Um, one of the things that they did was they made a change in the kitty tax rules. Um, so basically, kitty tax rules, it used to be, they, they used to be based on tax trust rates. So you would put money in your child's name, you could invest it, and it wouldn't be taxed at the parent's rate. It would be taxed at the, um, the at a, a, a trust tax rate. And that actually, um, there was like an arbitrage there for um, some parents who were making very high incomes. They were actually able to put some money and have the money get generated at a lower tax bracket for their child. Um, they got rid of that. Now it's just the parent's marginal tax rate. So whatever your parent is paying is what you're, is what the kid is going to pay. And that's basically it. Um, the other thing that they added a bunch of other related stuff in here. Um, and I don't want to dig too deep into the weeds, um, but basically they made it. So if you have employee, so if you're a business owner and you have employees um, that work 500 hours a year or more um, in three years from now. So by 2023, you have to include them in your retirement plan. So um, I was actually still, I was talking to some of my planner friends about this. We were deciding whether or not they were going to include contractors in that. Um, and if they were going to like, by that standard, if the contractor had an LLC, probably that, that wouldn't be included, but maybe a sole proprietor might. So you might need to be careful about who you hire. But, um, as of now they have said employees, um, and employees working 500 hours a year is actually not that much, um, in the grand scheme of things. So 500 hours a year, um, let's say you work, uh, 50 weeks a year. So we're talking about 10 hours a week. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, if you, it's not very much, it used to be a thousand hours, um, and you had to include them in the plan. So, um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, um, get more people to be, to have retirement plans so that they have retirement savings later on, which makes a ton of sense. Um, but if you're a business owner and you tend to hire part-timers and you do it because it actually does save you money because you don't have to give them benefits and everything else, um, now you can no longer do that. So something to consider, <laughs> when you are thinking about hiring somebody, because it might make sense actually in, in this case, if you have part-time employees, it might make sense to actually just hire one full-time employee. That way you only have to contribute, you know, a 4% match to somebody's plan and administer a plan that you were going to administer for yourself anyways, if you do have a plan. So, um, 
that's something that does affect all of my clients and that we've been thinking about a lot here, but, um, it also doesn't affect you for another three years. Um, but I would say, I mean, I, I wouldn't count on them turning back this law. It seemed like everyone was really excited about this one. So, um, yeah, trying to think what else I wanted to include in this conversation. Oh, right. <laughs> I remember now. So, um, one of the things that they did, um, which literally every fee only financial planner that I know was up in arms about and myself included was, um, they did something called, uh, so there's something in 401k provisions that's called safe harboring. So we were actually just discussing it related to that 4% match that I had mentioned. So, Basically, the way safe harboring works is that the ERISA was created so that um, it could protect employees, basically, um, and their retirement plans. And within ERISA, what what they've stated, essentially, is that a business owner, they don't want a plan to be, quote-unquote, top-heavy. So what that means is that they don't want the business owner and highly paid executives to be able to pile a bunch of money into a retirement plan while the little man at the company is getting screwed. So they they created something called testing, whereby... Um, either the employer has to go through testing on an annual basis to make sure that the highly compensated employees are not, you know, creating a top heaviness to the plan whereby they're putting a a lot of money in and the lower paid employees are not, or they can safe harbor the plan by, um, by contributing to the employee's plan by doing a match. So for every, it's usually, um, usually the standard that people use is 4%. Um, if they do a 4% match and there are a number of ways of doing a 4% match, you can be a real butthole about it, about how you give your 4%, (laughs) like you match the first two percent, then you match like, you know, a half a percent for the rest of it. So you actually make somebody contribute six percent to get four percent. Um, or you can just do one for one, which uh, isn't a nice thing to do, um, and not have long, you know, vesting schedules and cliffs and things. Um, but you can kind of be as brutal about it as you want to be. You can have the, you know, the most quote unquote cost effective plan is you know, you kind of jip the employee out of, <laughs> out of some contributions. Um, or you can just safe harbor the plan and contribute one for one and have like, you know, a graded vesting schedule. So what they did here though is I, and I honestly think it was from the insurance lobby. They said that if you select an annuity provider for retirement plans, that's a way of safe harboring the plan. Um, and that just like really ticked me off. Um, because it's really, I mean, it's, it's just totally counter, everything that I stand for. Um, and I think any field only financial planner stands for, and it's just not doing the right thing. Like you don't need to have an annuity in a retirement plan. So <laughs> that was one of the things that, um, that significantly pissed me off about this plan. Um, and it just seemed like it had to have been the lobbyists that got this thing in the bill because how else would this have gotten there? Um, especially because there's been a, like a pretty strong movement in the industry to, you know, be more transparent about fees, um, to disclose things. It's, it's a known fact that annuities tend to charge seven to eight percent upfront load fees and things like that. So um, that was something that when I heard about, I was pretty upset about it. Um, They are offering, though, for the small business thing that we discussed, a a small tax credit to establish a 401k or a 403b or SEP IRA or simple IRA plan for your employees. So um, that's nice in some regards, but it's also going to cost you money despite having that tax credit. So um, something else to consider when you're doing that. Um, They increased maximum contributions um, for automatic enrollment. So... Um, I don't remember what it used to be. I think it used to be 10% that you can like auto enroll an employee to contribute 10% of their salary. Um, they now increase that to 15%. So on the one hand, I guess it's great that you can get people to contribute more money. On the other hand, it's like, 
they didn't want to do that, then probably didn't matter anyways. And an employee can put however much they want to contribute to a plan um, into a plan. (laughs) Um, I remember like I used to, um, I used to kind of like game the system um, at UBS when I worked there because like I read their rules and apparently like if you contributed, (laughs) if you contributed like, you know, basically more than the match for the year in, in one shot, you can get it all at the beginning of the year. So what I used to do is I would like basically not take a paycheck for like, you know, two paychecks or whatever to like fully load my 401k. That way I can get the money as soon as possible. Um, because you know, money now is better than money later. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, it's just an example of why, like you can pretty much do whatever you want with these 401ks. I mean, typically the rules don't say to do like, it's not your best interest to do things like that. You have to kind of read the plan rules. Usually it's in your best interest to contribute evenly throughout the year, because that's the way you get the max match because the employer will contribute 4% every time you contribute 4% in these plans or the way it used to be. So um, in that case, if you would like front loaded it, you know, to be a hundred percent of your paychecks for the first four, you would only still get 4%. And then um, you would lose the match for the rest of the year. So you would be significantly decreasing the amount that you would get in a match. Um, So you really need to be reading your plan rules on these things and probably assume that it's going to be the latter, not like the weird stuff that was going on at UBS. Um, And um, they eliminated 401k loans made via credit cards or similar arrangements, which is, I think, actually pretty good. I mean, the 401k loan, uh, we haven't really discussed this, but it's actually really expensive. Um, It's still cheaper than, let's say, a 30% rate that you would get um, from a credit card company or something the like. But it's not always as cheap as you think um, because you have to take into account the fact that you're you're borrowing against pre-tax dollars, but you pay it back with after-tax dollars, which then increases your interest rate because it like you're paying like you were paying you were putting in with pre-tax dollars, so you got a lower tax rate as a result of that. But when you paid it back, you paid it back with after-tax dollars, and um, it significantly increases the rate by which you have to pay things back. So. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, if you are running a credit card balance, uh, I'm sure it's better to, you know, to pay off that credit card with the um, with a 401k loan. But it might not be that much better, depending on what the interest rate of the 401k loan is. Um, when we did the workout for one of my clients, I forget exactly what her interest rate was. Um but it did work out to be um, a twenty, like a twenty-one percent interest rate all in, um, with paying it back with after-tax dollars. So it's it is one of those things that you want to check on if you are doing a four hundred one k loan. Um, and they did a some other like little things in here, but I don't really want to get into all the nitty gritty details. If you do have questions about the Secure Act, I highly recommend that you reach out to me, or you reach out to another planner, or you can Google um, Kitsis Michael Kitsis Secure Act, and you can get a very long, large article. <laughs> <laughs> that outlines everything um, and more of what I've talked about today. Um, I just kind of hit the highlights here because um, I wanted to hit the things that are really important to my clients and to my listeners and um, to just give you a brief overview of everything that's going on in Congress. Um, so 
Hopefully you enjoyed this week's episode of Money Owners. Um, The next one will come out in two weeks. And I very much appreciate all the feedback I've gotten on the show. It's been really fantastic to hear from all of you. I would love a review if you'd write a review and give me five stars. Um, I read every single one of them, and I really appreciate them, and I take the feedback to heart. So um, please feel free to do that. And if you have any questions, you can submit them at moneyowners.com forward slash Ask Morgan with an E, or you can find me on Twitter at Morgan with an E Rochard or at money underscore owners. And I look forward to talking to y'all in two weeks. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm.